Wow. Thank you very much, Mark. I'm, I'm, I don't work at UBC anymore, so please, it's Dennis, not Professor Danielson. Um, I guess I'm Professor Emeritus, but merit is kind of a dodgy term if, uh, if you've even partly been influenced by Calvin. Um, you know, I love the line in Shakespeare, he's been we're served according to his desserts, which one of us would escape whipping. <laughs> well, uh, I've got a handout. So let me start at two sides of the room. Would you be willing? Thank you. So I'm not doing PowerPoint tonight. I'm kind of sick of PowerPoint. And I think a lot of audiences are. So uh, sort of what you see is what you get. It's, this has got two sides to it. There's only two pictures, one little one and one big one at the back. So as Clark has already indicated, um, some of what I've been doing over the last 20 years is looking at history of science and history of cosmology. What is cosmology? Cosmology is just thoughts about science, about the structure of the cosmos or the universe. They're treated as synonyms. Um, and my, my, my favorite character, actually there are two favorite characters, but one of my favorite characters in this, in this drama is Copernicus. And there's a little picture of him at the top left-hand corner of the page. I was once giving a lecture at UBC to people I didn't know and people who didn't know me. And Janet was in the audience listening to people's comments. And when this picture of Copernicus went up on the screen, there was some discussion among the ladies sitting behind Janet about whether this was actually me, a self-portrait. <laughs> I was I was flattered, of course. Uh, is it the nose or what? Anyway, um, this particular portrait of Copernicus is quite recent. And it's kind of an amusing story about how it came about. 20 years ago, I did a, a Copernican pilgrimage through various sites in Poland where Copernicus had been active as an astronomer, as a church administrator. Um, and in the on the very northern shores of Poland, there's a place called Fromburg. The German word for it was Frauenburg, city of the women. Frauenburg. And that's where there was a cathedral and Copernicus worked. He wasn't a priest, as you know, some people sometimes you mistake people mistakenly say he was he wasn't a priest he was a canon which is kind of an administrator and uh that's where he did his great work where he he wrote his great work called on the revolutions uh it's where well, he's not here anymore Aureticus, a young german astronomer mathematician came to visit him and encouraged him to finish that work and managed to get it all published um, so Copernicus was there, and in 2002, I, I was there, and I found a very knowledgeable man um, to give me a tour, and he there was one place in the cathedral where we stopped, and he looked at me and said, um, this is Copernicus's grave. Now, nobody was actually sure that it was Copernicus's grave at that time, but he told me it was. Three years later, um, the level of curiosity among, I don't know, 
who who ran the place, but they decided to exhume Copernicus, if that's who it was. And they dug down in the floor of the cathedral. If you've been in cathedrals in Europe, you know that often there are burial spots in the in the floor. And they uh, they took up this part of a skeleton, and there was a skull. It was missing a jawbone, but it was a skull. So they decided they wanted to be sure. So they got this skull, and without telling the recipients what they were looking for, sent it to the police forensic lab in Warsaw and said, we would like a, a photo fit, please, of the skull. And, and this is what the experts in the Warsaw forensic lab came up with. And of course, this if you've seen other pictures of Copernicus, this is a dead ringer. Um, so yes, this was Copernicus. And it was quite an event. So three years after I was there and had been told that this was Copernicus's bones, at least down there. Um, Copernicus's great work was published the last year of his life, which was 1543. I'd be really interested to know, I did this little survey over at BCIT the other day. How many of you, first of all, how many of you have heard of Copernicus, even if vaguely? Okay, good. Those of you who have, what what images or associations come, come to mind? What What's Copernicus famous for? Heliocentrism. Good, okay, heliocentrism. Anything else? Nothing to do with perpendicular. Uh, Sorry? Something to do with perpendicular. Uh, perpendicular, like mathematics? Yeah. Yeah, he, he was he, he was a great, great mathematician. But anyway. He's generally defined, at least the way I heard him talked about, right? He's not so much defined as what he discovered as the opposition to what he discovered. Like the pushback. His it, was very strong. Yeah, yeah. That, that kind of tug and pull. That, that's pretty iconic. That's right. And um, so let, let me talk about that a little bit. I, I'm not, if you, if you can do a little bit of PowerPoint of the mind. Imagine I've got two pictures up here. One of the geocentric universe as it was imagined in the late Middle Ages and before that. And then of Copernicus's vision. What you would see if you had these two PowerPoint pictures up in front of you is a series of concentric circles. They will look very, very similar, roughly the same number of circles. Each of them would have what was known as the sphere of the fixed stars encompassing them. But in the center of one would be the Earth, that's the so-called geocentric or Ptolemaic universe. And in the center of the other would be the sun. That's the Copernican universe. And in some ways what Copernicus did, well, yes, it was radical, but in terms of the diagram that we're talking about, he simply took the positions of the earth and the sun and swapped them around. So earth now became, as we sometimes say colloquially, third rock from the sun. <laughs> okay. um, and for Copernicus's mathematical mind, this was just beautiful because everybody knew what the what the periods of the planets were, how long it takes them to go around in in a given year. So Mercury is something like 
30 days. Next planet is <laughs> Venus. Nine months, yes. And then and then Earth. And Earth's period is what? One year. One year. Mars, <clears throat> two years. And then, you know, and so on and so forth, Jupiter, Saturn. And and to Copernicus's mind, this was a beautiful monotonic progression. The farther from the sun, the longer the period. So it made perfect sense mathematically. Because of course, science scientists even today look for models that exhibit beauty. And for Copernicus's mathematical mind, this was this was a beautiful thing. Um, the second line here, Copernicus raised the question, of course, the, of the position of the Earth in the universe, and also of the size of the universe. Let me talk about the position of Earth first. Well, I've already started talking about that. Um, in the pre-Copernican universe, based on a certain kind of physics, which was inherited from Aristotle, it made perfect sense to say that Earth wasn't, nobody said Earth was the center of the universe, but rather that it was in or at the center of the universe. Because Earth was the heaviest of the Aristotelian elements. The next came water, well, water is on the surface of the Earth. And then above that is air. And then there was a fourth element thought to be fire. So earth, water, air, fire. And then above the sphere of the moon, the orbit, of, we, we would say orbit of the moon, there was a fifth element, a quintessence, also known as ether. And it all made perfect sense, perfect common sense. Because, I mean, you can do experiments. You know, you can take your keys, which are obviously earth and not water. And if you drop them, they seek the center of the earth. And actually what they're doing is seeking the center of the universe in this old physics. Um, or if you, I won't take a lighter out of my pocket, I don't have one in, but if I put the flame on, you could see very well that the flame was trying to get to its natural place, which was up, right? Or if you're under the water and you breathe out, the, the air wants to get up to its proper place. So it all made really perfect sense. So Copernicus's model of the universe required uh, a profound rethinking of what seemed common sense. It also required rethinking the size of the universe. You know, everybody who's ever studied this seriously knows that the universe is big. Ptolemy himself, the, you know, the second century Greek Egyptian astronomer who, who codified all of this, said that the earth is as a point, as a point in relation to the sphere of the fixed stars. And as you know, if you study math, you know, you, you make a pencil point to show what the point is, but actually, according to Euclid, the point has no dimension whatsoever. So the earth has no measurable dimension relative to the sphere of the fixed stars. So nobody ever thought that the earth was big or dominant in the universe. For Copernicus, that changed by orders of magnitude because 
whereas Earth was, when it was conceived to be at the center, was as a point. Now the entire orbit of Earth around the sun, and you know, I could go through the, some of the mathematics and physics of this, was as a, as a point relative to the sphere of the fixed stars. And we know that the orbit of the Earth is very large, twice times 93,000 miles, right? But that is as a point relative to the sphere of the fixed stars. So the stars, you could, we're talking about models. I mean, the universe didn't actually change size um, because of Copernicus, but the model required it to be larger than was previously thought. The other thing that, that Copernicus caused was a change in thinking about the nature of Earth itself. You, you sometimes read that Copernicus, I'll get to this more in a moment, but that Copernicus dethroned the Earth from its special place in the center of the universe. But you know what? Right through the Middle Ages, the center of the universe was thought of as I'm quoting Pico here, which is on the sheet, the excrementary and filthy places, parts of the lower world. I don't need to translate excrementary for you. <laughs> He's thinking of the outhouse out back, right? <laughs> the earth is just the pits. But look what Copernicus does. Copernicus says earth is a planet. It had not been thought of as a planet at all before Copernicus's time. The sun was a planet, the moon was a planet, Venus, Mercury, Mars, and so on were planets, but Earth wasn't a planet, the sun was. And now what Copernicus is doing is saying, actually the sun is not a planet and Earth is. This required a huge imaginative change and a, it actually was a compliment to earth and not a demotion. It was not an insult to the earth to say it was no longer in the center of the universe. It was a promotion. Think of the names we have for planets. They're all names of gods. The planets were thought of as semi-divine. Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. I mean, I know I have a reputation among my kids for being Captain Obvious, but you know, it's obvious that the planets are semi-divine and now Copernicus is doing something kind of literally uppity with the earth, placing it among the stars. By the way, we tend to refer to stars simply as those shining points of light, but in, in the classical world, there were two kinds of stars. There were the fixed stars and the wandering stars. Planet means wanderer. And so Jupiter, Venus, Saturn, they were wandering stars. Now Earth, according to Copernicus, is a wandering star. Okay, well that's this sort of a little uh, campaign I've been on for 20 years trying to convince people that the so-called great Copernican cliche uh, is wrong. It's the persistent claim that Copernicus and his followers and modern science generally cosmologically demoted Earth and us. Carl Sagan, among many others, said that 
Copernicanism was the first in a series of great demotions delivered to human pride. You're not, not in the center of the universe anymore. What, what Sagan had in mind was Copernicus saying, you know, Earth isn't in the center of the universe. Darwin saying, you human beings, you're just animals. And Freud saying, you used to think that you, that you thought with what was up here, but actually you think with what is down here, right? And so it's another, another demotion. Um, it's, it's a little myth that's very favorable to people like Freud. Freud liked mm -hmm. it. Freud actually articulated it himself because he wanted to be seen to be following in the footsteps of Copernicus and Darwin in uh, doing, doing what he did. Um, okay, so Carl Sagan was, was wrong about this and many others with it. By the way, Carl Sagan, I found out to my detriment, um, is, is like a patron saint among astronomers. I once gave a talk at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. And I spent half the lecture critiquing Carl Sagan and what I referred to as his hokum about, um, about this sort of thing. And I didn't realize until the question period that more than half the people in that room were there because they'd been inspired by Carl Sagan to go into <laughs> astronomy. So I was not Mr. Popularity that day. <laughs> Uh, it's worth watching out for. I spent two hours this afternoon um, on a Zoom, what would you call it, podcast of some sort, uh, which was honoring the work of Frank Drake, who is the father of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And as I said to Janet when we were driving here, it was really, it was really hagiography. It was really putting, and I've got nothing against Frank Drake. He was a wonderful scientist, but He's the one who, who is the father of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And the level of certainty that he expressed about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence goes way beyond anything that any evidence that science, at least so far, has, has produced. Um, I 20 years ago, when I talked about this sort of thing, I'd ask people to go and Google Copernicus and the word demoted. I actually tried this this afternoon, and I was so pleased that uh, a lot of what comes up now is, um, it's not all about me, but uh, I have had actually made some headway in <laughs> convincing at least a certain population that it's, that it's indeed hokum. Um, 2006, the word of the year was the verb to Pluto. In 2006, the International Astronomical Union met in Prague and voted to declare that Pluto was not a planet, it was a dwarf planet. And this caused almost a scandal all the way around the world. It was written up in the New York Times and every, every other newspaper. Um, because, you know, when we went to school, at least when I went to school, there were nine planets and Pluto was the ninth one. Poor little Pluto was now being picked on by the International Astronomical Union. How unfair. And you'd hardly believe the arguments that were made against this move. You know, Pluto had only been discovered 90 years earlier. Um, the discovery, uh, discoverer of Pluto was a man by the name of Tom, Clyde, Clyde Tombaugh, and his, his widow was still alive. And people said, you know, 
Ptolemy was when it was still alive. How dare you demote Pluto while she's still alive? Is that a scientific argument? Anyway. Um, my point here, as far as the position of Earth and the sun in the universe, is that the sun, which had been considered, which you can see with your naked eye, you can't see Pluto with your naked eye anyway. Uh, nobody had to discover the sun. The sun was there every morning. The sun had been considered quasi-divine in many cultures. Copernicus was saying, sorry, the sun's not a planet anymore. Copernicus Plutoed the sun. So, so how can you say that he was Plutoing the Earth by making it one of the planets? It just doesn't make any sense. Okay. Um, I, I've read perfectly good, well, I thought they were perfectly good scholars who talk about our, you know, from a medieval perspective, what was our view of our planet? Well, we didn't think it was a planet until Copernicus came along and proposed that it was. He didn't, he didn't prove that it was either. It took maybe 150 years for this teaching really to sink in, really to find strong proofs. Mm. Um, by the way, just back to the quote from Galileo. Galileo was one of them um, who looked through the telescope and realized that the reason you can see a new moon is that there's light reflecting off of the earth onto the moon just as light reflects off of the moon onto the earth. And so the earth and the moon become a kind of dancing pair. One reflects light to the other and vice versa. And Galileo, again, building on the work of Copernicus, um, sort of rejoices and says, earth must be, uh, this phenomenon of earth shine works against those who say that earth must be excluded from the dance of the stars for earth does have motion it surpasses the moon in brightness and it is not the sump where the universe is filth and ephemera collect mm. so this was great earth is being promoted being exalted and i should point out in case it's not obvious that both copernicus and galileo and many of those early heliocentrists were strong theists strong christians believers, not only Catholic, but also Protestant. So try to bring this up to today and some of the issues that we have as Christians or as not, or not as Christian. I'm not assuming everybody here is a, uh, a strong believer. Maybe you're an inquirer. So what is the Christian or biblical response to what science reveals about the universe? Well, the Psalms Psalm 19, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. What does that mean? It doesn't tell us the extent of the heavens, but everybody who looks up at the night sky, especially if it's, if it's an area without light pollution, knows that they're glorious. And the psalmist declares that that glory reflects the glory of the one who made them. Uh, Psalm 8, which I didn't write here, but. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all of the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, 
the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, ordained, what is man, that thou art mindful of him. So there's kind of push and pull. There's a sense of the immensity, the glory of the universe, of the heavens, the declaration that God indeed made them. But looking at them, who am I? Who are we? That thou visitest them. So there's a recognition that God does take care over us, his small creatures, and that we are small relatives to the universe, but that there's a bigger universe out there that transcends us. Uh, New Testament, Romans 1. God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Um, we sometimes talk about the world or nature or the universe being the book of God's works. And we set it side by side with the book of God's words, not in competition, but God is the author of the Bible. God is the author of the universe. And we read one in light of the other and vice versa. Um, St. Augustine, the very appearance of created things constitutes a great book. Study, ponder, and read it from top to bottom. God did not form letters of ink by which you might know him, but rather placed before your eyes the very things he made. Can you seek a greater voice than that? Heaven and earth cry out to you, God made me. So this is a message that we're to hear. And I'd also point out that none of this conduces to human pride. And as illustrated by Psalm 8, none of us say, God made the heavens, God made me, look at me, I'm comparable with the heavens. No, there's a, a scripture is very strong on conveying uh, a normative sense of our humility. Um, but aren't we just overwhelmed by the sheer size of the universe? And quite possibly. And that's just getting worse all the time as our knowledge of the universe expands. Um, oh, years ago, I gave the example of, <clears throat> I, I was questioning the value of size. I tell the story of when I was at Stanford and Janet was at CalArts, <clears throat> And every two or three weekends, we'd see each other. I would either drive down to the LA area or once in a while, she'd fly up. And I'd pick her up in San Diego and we'd have a weekend together. And then I'd drop her back at the airport. This is before you couldn't get anywhere close to an airport. And so I'd, I'd watch her take off. She was very small. She was in a plane that was bigger than her, but even that plane disappeared like a speck. And if somebody had come up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, don't worry about her, she's very small. Um, we would have had a very serious and antagonistic conversation. <laughs> because size is only one measure and not even necessarily a measure of importance. Johannes Kepler, I want to spend a bit of time with him. He was another follower of Copernicus. And 
he, in his time, struggled with the increasing sense that the universe was immense. By the way, immense simply means immeasurable. But the universe is not infinite. No, no. I, I, I mean, that's a very good observation. A lot of people think that the universe is, is infinite. It's actually the, the visible universe, by definition, is not infinite. We don't know what's beyond, if anything, beyond the visible universe. But what about this? This is Kepler now. What about this, our tiny ball? Notice his affectionate language. Our little cottage, which we call Earth. <laughs> the womb of growing things. Herself fashioned by a certain internal faculty and in turn the architect of marvelous works. She kindles daily from herself so many little living things, plants, fishes, insects, that she may easily scorn the remaining bulk of things in view of this her own nobility. So he's not getting all puffed up about earth, but recognizing that earth and its inhabitants have a nobility to them. Lastly, we're turning over the page. Lastly, behold, if you will, the little bodies we call the animals. What smaller than these can be imagined in comparison to the universe? But there now behold feeling and voluntary motions. We might add consciousness, an infinite architecture of bodies. And behold, among these, those, these fine bits of dust we call humans, to whom the creator granted that in a certain way they may beget themselves, clothe themselves, defend themselves, teach themselves an infinity of arts and daily grow in goodness, in these is the image of God, and these, in a certain sense, are masters of the whole bulk. In a certain sense. Again, it's not an overreaching claim on Kepler's part, but there's great awe that these specks of dust we call humans can be participants in the universe. So what, what Kepler is doing and I think this is a good model for us as we try to grasp the immensity of the universe, is to appreciate those qualitative things that transcend mere size. And I, I've mentioned consciousness. Uh, Kepler, of course, mentions the worship of God. Um, human beings love for each other, for the creation. <clears throat> And I would point out the fact that each one of us is part of the universe. We might be specks of dust relative to the universe itself, but we are part of the universe. Um, Steven Weinberg in his famous, I think it's 1988 book on the Big Bang called The First Three Minutes, concludes by saying in his view, the more the universe appears explicable, the more it seems pointless. It's just very sad. Um, I would simply say, and I think it's a sound argument, that each one of us has meanings, has purposes, has desires, has consciousness. But only a few people find them. Well, but, but we can search for them, right? We can search for them. 
I'm not arguing with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if those things are true, and if we're part of the universe, then at least in this small sample that we're looking at tonight, there is purpose in the universe. There is meaning. There's desire for greater meaning, sure, but there is meaning. Um, so just ne let's never forget that we are part of the universe, might be modest, small parts of the universe, but we are part of the universe. And we're therefore cosmologically significant. Any cosmology that occludes the presence of agents such as you and I is an incomplete cosmology. So let's carry on with Kepler for a moment. So what is it to us that the body of the universe possesses a great breadth, while the soul possesses none? Thus we may discern the good pleasure of the creator who is author alike of the roughness of the large masses and of the perfection of tiny things. Yet he glories not in sheer bulk, but embodies those, and sorry, ennobles those he wishes, wished to be small. In the end, through these intervals from Earth to Sun, from Sun to Saturn, from Saturn to the fixed stars, we may learn to rise step by step toward a recognition of the immensity of divine power. Well, that was Kepler who believed in a universe that was much smaller than we now recognize the universe to be. And so I, I want to uh, move just briefly to this footnote about the discovery of extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, I've, I've been sort of dabbling in, in SETI recently because I'm together with a, a Catholic friend trying to launch a book called um, Cosmic Surprises from, from Copernicus to ET. Um, it hasn't got launched yet, so we'll see. But we're, we're trying to figure out how to handle the ET bit without treading on too many toes, because there are all sorts of people out there, including scientists, who are really committed to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But one of the less pleasant sides of um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence is that some of those SETI folks are doing it because they think that if they could detect life out there, it would blow earthly religions out of the water. Some of them are quite explicit about this. Well, there's a guy by the name of Ted Peters, whom I heard speak in Atlanta a few years ago, a sociologist who heard this claim by um, Jill Tarter, who is a member of SETI, and said, oh, okay, so they think that discovery of extraterrestrial intelligence would blow religious belief out of the water. I wonder, this might be a testable claim. So he developed an extensive um, questionnaire, which he ran by, I forget how many people, but lots of them, um, from different faith traditions, Buddhist, Muslim, Christian, I think one or two others, and actually ask them, actually ask them, if we discover extraterrestrial intelligence, what would that do to your faith? Well, of course, the SETI people thought, oh, boy, that's, that's, that's the end of the road for those guys. 
Well, over 80% of them said, in effect, oh, that would be interesting. <laughs> a very, very small minority responded in such a way that would confirm the assumption of the SETI people, or at least some of the SETI people, um, that the discovery of extraterrestrial intelligence would, would undermine religious belief. You know, Christians, I can't, can't speak for Muslims or Buddhists, but Christians have gone through a whole series of transitions of discovering new things based on what science or discovery brings. I mean, that there are human beings living in the, what we now call the Western Hemisphere. Really? That was quite a revelation. And for, for some years after that, it was thought that there that the Antipodes, you know, down under, was not inhabited. And they eventually went to Australia and found that there were human beings living there too. So you sort of roll with those punches. Oh, I didn't know that, but that's very interesting. Uh, when I was 19, and one of the formative books I read, there a tiny little book by J.B. Phillips called Your God is Too Small. I recommend it. Um, and you know, some of our assumptions about God limit God in a way that's unfortunate. The picture at the bottom of this page is one that was just published in July. It's the Webb Telescope. This, there's, there are a lot of things about it that are similar to the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. You can look that up too. But if you just go on the NASA site and you can find this. Um, most people, when they first glance at this picture, think that they're looking at stars. And in one sense, they are. But there are actually only about six discrete stars in this picture. And they, they're kind of in the way. The rest of those points of light are galaxies, each of which contain billions of stars. Oh, and I didn't mention that the, the field of this photograph would be like holding a grain of sand at arm's length, mm. like that. So you imagine how many grains of sand it would take to you know, complete a, a full sweep. So increasingly, these telescopic pictures and of course, it's a composite in a certain sense. I, I met a, a Christian guy once who was one of the NASA people putting these pictures together. Um, these pictures display in a way that was almost unimaginable before the immensity and the power and the glory of God. But I think we're still justified in looking at them and saying, in ways that I couldn't even have understood before and maybe can't understand now. The heavens declare the glory of God. So I'd be really interested in hearing your reflections about the cosmos or anything else. Um, it's really great to be here with you. So if I ever see a million, my first question would be, does God exist? Would you see it? <laughs> if, if you were right if i see an alien yeah and it, and, it, and, it, and i would say did you see god does he exist or something? that would be my first question sure but uh anyway i 
I was really interested by the conscious of the galaxy, yes, the universe, because it's so peaceful to see the harmony that's growing. And I always see inside of me, I don't know if it's my brain, that there's a part of me that is a part of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I should, you know, like this is how I see it in, in myself. Like I always thought that there's a part of me that don't need oxygen or anything. It's living here, but it's also connected to something like whatever. Well, well, in terms of your physical composition, that's certainly true as well. Mm -hmm. Because you know the old expression "we are stardust" is is literally true, because the the elements of which Earth is made and from which we are made physically um, had their birth with an exploding star, a supernova, which spread its its elements of <clears throat> iron and carbon and so on out into the universe, where they could collect and form planetary nebulae. Um, so I mean that's that's true to kind of a literal physical level. I think you're you're also being more metaphorical, aren't you? That there's part of you. Well, I, no, I mean, it's not like I literally see it. Well, maybe you think I'm crazy, but I literally see the, I see this little kind of piece of universe inside of me that I don't know where it is in the universe. Okay. Okay. So there's a resonance. Well, I see it physically like I see you, but it's inside. Anyway, but there also the other part is I went on a three days, uh, four days, three days walk in the nature by myself. Oh yeah. Where I sleep outside of myself. Yeah. Yep. And I really, I really thought I never felt alone. I, I didn't feel alone. I feel Good. more alone when I'm in, where around people. Yeah. But I really thought that the when I was when I was alone in that nature, that there was like a, a living conscious around. Okay. Me. It was really a life. Yeah. So yeah. What is that all about? Do you know? Is there something? I, different people experience that differently, but um, if we're serious about seeking the presence of God, if God is, as we say, om, omnipresent, mm -hmm. then communion with God is not limited by whether you're with people or not, whether you're in a city or in, out in the woods for three or four days or more. Mm -hmm. Right? So, uh, so there's a living spirit that's wandering around all the time. Isn't it? Do you think? Or? I don't know about the wandering around part. It's it's maybe if if you and I went out into the woods, we'd wander around. But <laughs> yeah, I do anyway. Yeah, it's a little similar to I think uh, like C.S. Lewis wrote a series. Uh, I can't what series called it. That hideous strength. Yes, books. Yeah, and. Mm -hmm. First book, he gets abducted and is basically taken to another planet, uh, where the beings are are of a different dimensional type. Yes, almost. Yes, out of the silent planet. Yeah, out of the silent planet. It was it was a fascinating, um, experimented thought. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, that, that Lewis did and is very good at. Yeah, of uh, like you perceive yourself in this way, you're interfacing with something that is so different. And their base conception of themselves is so different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was kind of how he played. It was very different than how most people play with extraterrestrial life. Yeah. Right? They play with it like this is an alien that is gray, looks weird, big head. And he was really dealing with that that spiritual element of us feeling connected to something else. And then the person meeting that connective thing or an element of it. Yeah. And, and also uh, I would add to that our being alienated 
from those other beings those other beings aren't fallen the way we are yeah right? yeah that was a good point. and so that's out of the silent planet it's, it's the earth that's the silent planet because it's in a kind of cosmic corn yeah yeah that was another key yeah <laughs> you want to over here let's cherish your thoughts i have a question <clears throat> Two, first of all, is this where Clarence is in this wonderful light? <laughs> Just curious. Um, <laughs> yes, this evening. More seriously, uh, you know, you've been talking about how our understanding of the universe has just expanded, expanded, expanded. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, that during the same time that the telescope was so controversial, there was a guy named Lewenhoek who discovered the microscope and studied how small things were. Yeah, yeah. And just imagine how much smaller they have become now. Yes, that no. where we're even studying the, the mechanism of DNA. And I was watching some YouTube videos of just how DNA functions. And it's like a, and it shows it in slow motion and then it shows it in actual speed. Hmm. And it's just astounding. Yeah. Yeah. How complex. But it's not looking out there. No, so it right. almost seems to leave us untouched, except by extension to say, look how small we are. Yeah. Yeah. But if we're looking within the universe within, some people would say, well, then that starts explaining the mechanism of our humanity. That this can explain belief in God or explain a behavior or not just skin tone, eye color. But uh, genetics being passed on. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, what would you say in light of that to say, is there still significance in, because most people would say, well, the more we've discovered of the internal universe and the mechanism of the human, the less value, the more pointless it seems to become. Okay, so so that that sort of microscopic rather than macroscopic perspective seems more to conduce to a kind of reductionism yes than than the because it's explaining the mechanism of humanity not just yeah. the mechanism yeah. of the universe yeah yeah i mean it's 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 another series of observations that can fill one with awe um do, do those do those mechanisms imply mechanism from the get-go? Mm. Like, is, is there something that's not mechanistic? Uh, I heard an interview of a woman oh, a week or so ago who works in apologetics, but is a brain scientist in Oxford. I can't remember her name. Um, who talks about the difference between the mind and the brain. Mm -hmm. um, there's a certain kind of brain science that wants to reduce mm. volition. So it basically gets rid of free will, gets rid of or treats consciousness as, as kind of an epiphenomenon mm -hmm. that's associated with her strong argument, and I can't recapitulate it in anything like an accurate way, was that there's something about Eunice and about meanness that cannot be reduced to a mechanism. And, I mean, she had arguments for this. I'm just stating it as an assertion. Um, I, I don't see any reason for capitulating to 
a reductionist mechanism based on those microscopic, super microscopic findings. Mm. I don't think we should be cowed by that. We could be awed, awed by it, but uh, yeah. I just wanted to make a comment to that because we're actually talking about that in my psychology class, mm. this um, biopsych class this week. My prof said, I'm not a religious person, but this question of consciousness to me seems like such a miraculous thing. And he talked about that, how there's two camps. Some people who say like consciousness could never like just be uh, a, like a biological thing. And then other people who say, we'll find a way to explain it eventually scientifically. And so, like he said, I don't really know, but like to me, it, it's just like this miracle. There's this wonder in him. That that's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. A person of faith, but to him, it, it obviously. Because of course, you wouldn't want to be one of those. No, no, no. Yeah. Like a in him that was like his face kind of lit up <laughs> talking about. Yeah, this. no, that's 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 great. Well, that that too declares the glory of God. I think when, yeah. when people who who aren't wanting to come across as religious, <laughs> have that experience of awe right. yeah. in the face of, you know, and then there's the other camp that says, you know, eventually we'll be able to explain it all. Science of the gaps. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it, yes. Um, do, do you see a parallel, speaking of the macroscopic and the microscopic, do you see a parallel there? And in a sense, are we at the center? Kind of, you know, is 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 infinitely small, infinitely large. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a book that came out uh, probably twenty years ago called Powers of Ten, and and it shows that on a logarithmic scale we are in the middle. I mean, it's a logarithmic scale; it's not a linear scale. Um, Can you explain what that means? I'll try. A logarithmic scale. Well, if you do powers of ten, if if I'm if I'm one, um, then I'm not mathematician enough to do this very well. But you know, it's sort of one tenth and one tenth of that. One tenth. Non-linear exponentially. It, it's, it's an exponential line, and that when you go from the smallest known nano whatever it is to the size of the observable universe we're very nearly in the middle as far as on that on that uh, logarithm oh interesting yeah okay thank you but i mean I, i'm not sure that really proves anything but i'm just trying to engage with it how, how do you feel as uh someone who's primarily um the ability of perception and identification of a, of a being, and then they're interfacing with uh, material space. There's, there's a line of thought that without perception of material space, uh, you can make a, a line of argument that's quite strong that material space is almost not present if you don't have a quantifiable being to quantify it. Did you ever think about like just just, just run that slowly yeah. by me basically <laughs> like if, if nobody can see if if a tree falls in the forest and nobody here that did it fall right right, right, like, right if there's if there's nobody to see quantify anything to uh 
you're getting to this problem with uh, artificial intelligence. Super hard to map the world, right? Yeah. And we're really good at it. Yeah. We're really good at mapping yeah. this crazy complex, multi-scaled environment. In when you look at the macro, okay, right? Yeah. And we're as far as we know the only people that do this mapping, looking, quantifying, yeah, concept. Yeah. yeah. You try and do the thought experiment, but you take that out. Does the mechanisms? As impossible question, but just uh, in your uh, opinion of looking at this throughout your life, did the mm -hmm. mechanisms continue without a, uh, an, a something to observe it? Yeah, well, the place I see this being engaged with is discussions of um, quantum states. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and Schrodinger's cat and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. It, it, they, and, and Niels Bohr and the and, and the the sense somehow and I don't get it actually I honestly don't I'm just my brain's too small for it yeah I but, really but that that a particular state is dependent upon the observer mm -hmm. so I don't I don't know what to do with that frankly mm -hmm. I'm just a kind of a amateur common sense sort of yeah it's just hard not to think about that amazing expanse yeah right and you're yeah. like if, if nothing could observe that amazing expanse, what would that be? Uh, and I, again, I don't know what the answer to that is. The, the one little, this may or may not pertain to your question, the one thing that I was fascinated by in the work of people like Copernicus and Galileo um, is the way in which geometry was applied astronomically. So in the old, in the pre-Copernican so-called two-story universe, Geometry was something we used on Earth, as the name suggests. Geometry is Earth measure. And we use uh, Euclid and various triangulation methods. And, but, but once we, once Earth is raised to the level of a planet, that old so-called uh, sphere of the moon uh, di isn't dividing the universe into two stories anymore, mm -hmm. the lower story and the upper story. And suddenly you can use Earth measure, and Galileo does it most dramatically. Um, when he first looks through the telescope at the moon, he realizes that the sun's light is casting shadows that there are mountains on the moon. And he, being smarter than I am, thought, okay, uh, if I look at the half moon, along the line that's known as the Terminator, I noticed that some of the peaks in the dark bit of the moon are being light, are being lighted mm. before the Terminator, before that dividing line actually moves over. And so he was able to just using basic trigonometry to figure out that the height of those mountains on the moon was higher than any mountains mm. in Italy. It just it's, it's sort of so it's a, an application of geometry. Mm. So here's an earthly observer seeing things, rec recognizing things for the first time. That's not really what you, what you were asking, but it's I, my question is, is really impossible. In yeah, essence, but I was interested to yeah. Uh, there's a couple of questions on the chat. Sorry, Martin. These people have been virtually waiting. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, one person says there's quite a debate. There's two. So let me ask the first one first. 
There's quite a debate about whether the Bible allows for God to create life elsewhere. What is your opinion about that? My simple opinion about that is that the Bible doesn't prevent God from doing anything, certainly not from making life elsewhere. I mean, if he created the universe and decided he wanted um, an, an Earth-like habitable planet somewhere else in our galaxy or beyond that has life on it, that's his privilege. And I would be... A, uh, not surprised, but I would be awestruck to know that. I don't know it. But sort of like the response to Ted Peters' ETI religious crisis survey, I think, wow, really? Um, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Uh, and of course, one would like to know, are they like us in any way? Or are they just microbes? or? <clears throat> well, I mean, microbes have a much easier time to exist than humans. Um, I mean, T.H. Huxley is very good about this. He, he sort of almost makes fun of the principle of the survival of the fittest. He said, be careful. It may be that the fittest to survive are the microbes, not humans. But it, anyway, that's uh, so the simple answer is I don't think the Bible says anything that dictates that God did not, could not create elsewhere in the universe. Great. Um, uh, I will. If there is life, this is by the same person. If there is life, could there be, um, could there, but I think it's B. If there, if there is life, could there be sin there? Uh, well, I guess. What are the preconditions of sin? I think one of the preconditions of sin is is consciousness. I mean, do you do you talk about a you know microbe sinning? No, you don't. Do you talk about a rat sinning? Probably not. And you sort of go up the <laughs> chain of that's definitely <laughs> you know. And we do say, "Oh, naughty dog." Um, I, and I'm actually not trivializing the question. Um, I think the simple answer is yes, if those beings elsewhere in the universe have some strong analogy with us, sin would be possible. Sin is a creature turning away, you know, Romans 1 again, worshiping the creature rather than the creator, being, you know, engaging in idolatry. It's not at all inconceivable to me that creatures elsewhere in the universe might make the same mistakes that we do. Good. Uh, okay, one more. Uh, could Christ die for there? Could Christ die for sin there? That's that's the really big one, and that's been around for, for a long time, and I don't know what the answer is. Um, I would simply direct you to a famous verse in the Bible, known as John 3.16 which says, for God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only begotten son. So I, I, I see no grounds for saying that Christ's work of forgiveness and salvation 
needs to be limited to us here on Earth. He gave a big thumbs up. <laughs> I don't know if he's a Pharisee or not. Um, I'm getting no. Thank you so much for that question. Here's another one. I'm an amateur astronomer and also ran a planetarium, also ran planetarium shows for 14 years. Wow. I had some Christians that thought that when I talked about the age of the universe, that I was not glorifying God. I don't see how old the universe is as a problem in my faith. How would you respond to a young earth person? It feels to me that makes God a trickster when we see light that is billions of years old. I, uh, can I ask the name of the person? Just the first name. I'm not going to track you down. Oh, um, Dean. Just, oh, the first question? The first, first name of, of the person. The second question. So I can answer directly. Dean. 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 Dean, I, I just couldn't echo you more, apart from the fact that I've never run a planetarium show. Um, I have I have received recently serious flack from a young Earth creationist because I believe in an old Earth and an old universe. Um, this person is inviting me to question my own faith in Christ for those reasons, and I try to stay calm and loving but it really offends me. Um, again, I mean, your God is too small. My, my God's probably still too, my, you know, my conception of God is probably still too small, but I, I just feel that young earth creationists, at least, I mean, I'm sure there are a variety of them, that, that their God is too small. Um, I'll say what I said to you before the, the lecture. This person with whom I was in conversation said, do you believe that the biblical account of creation is literally true? And first of all, I said, can you show me where the Bible uses the word literally? Um, and so then I asked, this is, you know, obviously a gotcha kind of question. Do you believe that it's literally true that the sun rose this morning at six o'clock? Because actually, if you look on the... Uh, Government of Canada weather website. It says that this morning, the oh, it's probably closer to seven. Um, the sun rose this morning at seven. Well, let me tell you, the sun did not rise this morning. The earth was turning in such a way that the sun appeared to rise mm -hmm. at seven. And there are all, all sorts of biblical expositors over the centuries, from the early church fathers on, who struggled with this issue. I mean, not struggled, not a struggle to the death, but they say, look, two great lights in the sky, it says in Genesis. Well, two great lights in the sky is what we actually see, and they're the sun and the moon. But a good astronomer or somebody who runs a planetarium show can show you reasons for thinking that the sun is bigger than the moon and um, Jupiter and Saturn are much bigger than the moon. That's what astronomy teaches. But from our practical day-to-day -day point of view, there are two great lights in the sky. And that's what the that's the kind of discourse that the Bible is using when it makes this account. Great, thanks. Uh, I won't ask the other question. I'll let Martin go. <laughs> it seems a very small question. You said 
that your brain wasn't big enough for something that, that you were discussing with Jonathan. And my brain's not big enough to understand a lot of the, not the concepts, but the sheer words. But I don't have a problem with a lot of the faith issues. But I don't mind grappling a little bit more. So my question to you, Dennis, is can you, off the top of your head, recommend a book which helps someone who doesn't have this scientific background and, and may at times struggle a little bit with the concepts to be able to move a step or two forwards? Okay. Um... I'm sorry, I'm going to go all egotistical on you here. I was struggling <laughs> with exactly those questions when I decided that I wanted to put together a reading list for myself, which turned into the Book of the Cosmos, which was advertised earlier, <laughs> earlier this evening. It starts with Genesis, starts with the pre-Socratics, moves through you know, the actual telescopic evidence for the expansion of the universe, it ends with a sermon by Owen Gingrich in which he concludes the sermon with a prayer by Kepler, praying that all of this would conduce to God's glory. And of course, that's the, also the end of my chapter. So it's a sort of a layered, a layered prayer. Um, or you could, you, know, you could look in the bibliography of, or the... Uh, suggested reading at the end of chapters in that book. I mean, that's, I'm giving you that example just because it's close to home. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I think that there's also another book called The um, Science and Christianity for Views. It's just mm -hmm. maybe a basic mm -hmm. posture of how Christians can think about science generally. It doesn't yeah. get too technical yeah. because it's trying to think about how do we look at these two books. Yes. And also, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Kenneth Howell has a book called God's Two Books. Hmm. Um, which it's, I, I like it because it's kind of historically based as well. Hmm. I have one quick question. Yeah. The, the most important part, part for me that, of your lecture was you said that the universe has purpose and meaning. Yes. Um, I don't want to get lost in the question. So, do you know what are they, or if you don't know what are they, where, where you said we can find them? I can find them right here, and right here, and right here, and right here. And we're part of the universe, small bits of dust in the universe, but we have purposes. So, uh, we might not fully have discovered those purposes even. How do we, how does one and do you found? There's no such thing of, of, of an individual finding its purposes. It's a universal purposes. Uh, it's purpose within the universe. Anything that you find, anything that you do is, is within the universe. And what are what is the purpose? What are they can you describe? Well, there are different formulations of it, one of which that I adhere to is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose. For those who doesn't find God, is there any other purpose? Well, you've just assumed that someone hasn't found God. I would, I would say the purpose would be to seek God, to seek God's face. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've said it to people who are very close to me. 
it might be a long journey. It might be something that stretches over a long period of time, but never stop seeking the face of God. Is there a way to, uh, if I ever, if I never find him, is there a way to have fun trying to? Way to have fun? Mm -hmm. to, to find him? If he can, if he I, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a great believer in fun. Um, <laughs> I think, I think the, the, the journey, the search, I mean, it's, it's a serious kind of fun. It's an adventure. I mean, I, those of you who know me know that I love adventures. You don't always know what you're going to find on an adventure. But if you're seeking the face of God, if you're looking for God, trying to figure out what, what's God like, looking at Jesus Christ for clues as to what God is like, uh, those, are, those are serious purposes. And they're not necessarily fulfilled right now or instantaneously. They can be a long, a long search. I need to backpack on that of being someone that's in that position, I think, as well, of the search and whether or not meaning can ever be self-internal to the search, right? You never get to the destination, but it's still fulfilling. It's almost like if you don't know exactly where you're going and you're you're looking at the horizon, you see a mountain. Right, and you like go into a valley, and then you take a massive left, right, and then you go back onto a hill, and the mountain's way over to the right, but you're closer, right, and so you keep doing these adjustments, and you're aiming for the best good that you can conceive. Like you said, that's seeking really the face of God in real time, and like, there's nothing more worth doing than that. I, I agree. Uh, the you know. At the end of Milton's Paradise Lost, Adam and Eve have just been kicked out of the garden because they're sinners and they've disobeyed. Um, but they're, they've got a couple of things going for them. They're together. And after being separated in different ways, they hold hands as they leave. And Milton says, with wandering steps and slow. You know, they're on a pilgrimage. They're there to observe what Milton calls observing providence, trying to trying to discern providence, trying to understand God's purposes. And that can involve wandering steps and slow. Um, but there's 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 love there. There's a sense of direction there, even though there's the wandering, even though there, there's sort of stumbling stumbling forward so it's it's worth joining that journey i would add to it to it um vince that <clears throat> one I, I i someone helpfully told me that there are three layers of meaning uh small meanings medium meanings and big meanings <laughs> uh <laughs> fancy language uh, but small meanings is going to your favorite coffee shop, uh, connecting over a show. Um, medium meanings are family, legacy, contribution. But then there's the big meanings. And, it, and basically, if you don't have the big meaning, then all these other little meanings are just whiffs of and clamoring for what holds it all together. And those big meanings is like, okay, how can you explain 
how all those meanings fit. Um, and you know, you know that I believe that God holds all things together through Jesus, and that He's the creator of all things, and so He's created that meaningful existence where I don't think that another belief system really gives you coherence to that meaning. Uh, but I don't think that is, I think it is that journey, but it's a journey that ends by trusting mm -hmm. and yielding, not conquering the mountain. I don't think that God is someone that you conquer, but that you allow yourself to be conquered by. Mm -hmm. um, so that you see that, oh wow, this this universe. I mean, we look at this mm -hmm. and think this is in this is immense. Maybe not technically, but mm -hmm. it's it's beyond our human imagination how this can be measured. But even if we get to the end of the universe, we're still asking those same questions. Why are we here? What is the meaning of all this? So it doesn't matter how much information we collect, we still have to ask, where did this come from? Um, what is the end goal? And I don't think that there's another satisfactory answer until we recognize that God is infinite in his power, but also personal, and that he's spoken to us, and that he's spoken to us through his people. And so really, ultimately, it's about yielding to the creator of the universe. Mm -hmm. And it makes all those small meanings possible. Where even Paul is, you know, uh, one of the early church guys was in jail and he's like, that's okay. Mm, yeah. My meaning isn't lost. And you can have someone with the biggest house on the biggest mountain and say, I have no idea. What's that uh, desire of conquering God that we've seen? The desiring what? Anxious. King that that were losing their mindset. I am God and stuff. You know, why does people have this? You, you use the word conquer, like because I think that we want to be the middle of the universe and give it coherence by our choices and by what we choose to believe and what we've assimilated and what we've built up. Um, that we've we've tried to give coherence to our life through our own power, and I don't think that we can. And this is what I think, so. Yeah. It's the easiest and the hardest. Uh, there's a question. Um, we can come back to that then, if you like. But I'll just ask I, the question. I know, I know. Oh, okay. We can go for our own back question. Oh, that's great. Uh, that's good. Can I uh, talk? Can I like, yeah. support you just uh, for a second? Yeah. Um, in, in Christian theology, there's a question. So I, I'm a student at Libri, and I, I study philosophy, but. Um, one thing that has been astounding to me about you and really exciting, um, Dr. Johnson, is your disposition towards wonder. Um, especially because there are these like big guy philosophers, Heidegger, Kierkegaard, etc., um, who, who talk about um, a search for meaning insofar as uh, trying to discover what it is that we are and what first principles of existence are and human beingness is. Uh, we really end up out of solipsism, which is the, the true conviction that it is only us and our consciousness that, that exists. And with it, and then there are um, theologians that respond to this kind of um, depravity, frankly. Uh, it says that without your disposition for wonder, uh, seeking God's face, God's beauty, and the small and meaning and large meanings, you really do that only end up at this poverty of, of seeing meaning in, in only the meaning itself or 
inward ceases striving. And so even all these like big guy, big guy philosophers that use big hard words um, and uh, kind of a real sad philosophy that um, has stripped, stripped of this one mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kierkegaard's pretty good actually, uh, yeah. uh, but I think that I think that's right. Uh, I gave a talk the other day on uh, Dante and Milton. I used to teach a whole course on Milton, but the other day I had to talk about Dante and Milton all in one 45 minute <laughs> talk. Um, and one of the themes we hit on was what's known as the beatific vision. Um, Dante, when he looks into the face of Beatrice, his beloved, who can be pretty harsh with him sometimes. Sometimes one has a beloved who can be pretty harsh with one. Uh, not, always, not, always a, not always a bad thing, but he, he looks into her eyes and he's, he's in love with her, but, what he, but because she is looking at the place of God, what he sees in her eyes is the reflection of God. And so it's a kind of it's a kind of both and. Um, one of the things I love about Psalm 8 is that it sort of throw in the midst of this cosmic stuff, it throws in that line about out of the mouth of babes and sucklings has the ordained strength because of thine enemies. That thou might still the enemy in the avenger. Um, there's somehow a suppression of evil that takes place through the cry of an infant. Um, this is very close to home because eight weeks ago we received a new grandson no. whom we visited this week. Well, we've seen him a few times now. We're pretty obsessed. We're pretty, pretty badly smitten. Um, and when I hold that child, eight weeks old, and realize or ask myself, 12 months ago, where was he? Um, you know, he's something utterly new and utterly unique in the universe. And then, you know, he's got, hasn't got a big attention span yet, but he's <laughs> at the point where he'll open his eyes and look at you and make a little cooing noise and smile. In some ways, that's, you know, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, that's the ordained strength because of thine enemies. It's, it's, it's cosmically significant. Yeah. He's a, like you, like me, a unique individual in the entire history of the universe. Never been another one and never will be another one. Mm -hmm. So, so that's awesome. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And then you wish that you would never grow. <laughs> That's why we put clamps on our kids. <laughs> yeah, one of my little jokes with small children is I say, Oh, you've grown, your mom and dad haven't been squashing you down properly. <laughs> so of course, growth, intellectual, physical, yes. uh, is, is part of the awe. Do you think it's a mechanistic difference uh, in in the enterprise of like I, I've talked to there's there's a lot more astronomers that are believers than there are biologists. 
Interesting. Yeah, and, and biologists tend to be aggressive, uh, at least the ones that I've met, in their critiques. Um, and I'm always interested, is, is it a cause and effect of uh, an individual that goes and finds what they were looking for, or an individual that goes and then the, that uh, discipline, you know? And each discipline has its own aura, its own, yeah. it's not its own yeah. psyche. Yeah. Is this uh, one of those logarithms logarithms that's at work, right? Yeah, and uh, but also I think it's partly like the Kipling esque. I think it's very correct. It's like nature really is red in tooth and claw if you look at. That's it. Tennyson. Is it Tennyson? Yeah. Oh, Kipling stole it then. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, the basically, like if you look at the mechanistic movings of biology, it's vicious. Yeah, a lot of yep. ways. And that, whereas you yeah. look at the stars and there is that wondrous detached aspect. Right. Can right. that not break people's will to find wonder? It, depending on what they look uh, at. Too interesting. Long? Yeah. I mean, that's the, the nature written tooth and claw, you know, the whole eons long story of predator and prey. And, mm -hmm. you know, and we're, we can sometimes ourselves either yeah um i hadn't thought about that but i one of the things that surprised me just by the way having spent two hours this afternoon on this uh podcast from the seti institute one of the speakers was guy consolmagno who is the vatican astronomer oh and he's actually on their advisory board so he's obviously open that's a job right cool uh, I, I was very, I was very impressed. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I have, I have, I have, I guess I have, I have met a lot more astronomers than biologists just because of the stuff I've studied, but I've not met astronomers who are, who are as dogmatic as some of the biologists. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Thank you. Uh, here's a technical question. I read the idea that our universe is an, an emergent property of a greater reality. And from that flows considering that our universe, uh, so space and time is curved. Why then reject the idea that the universe is infinite? Did you understand that question? Just run it by me one more time. Yeah. I read the idea that our universe is an emergent property of a greater reality. And from that flows considering that our universe, so space and time is curved. I'm not sure. Why then reject the idea that the universe is infinite? Um, Do you want to clarify that, Greg? Do you want to ask that in person? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Well, yeah. See, that's always easier to say. And, and just as a disclaimer, my science knowledge is sort of like reading Brian Greene. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I like the I, I like the sense that we are an emergent property of a greater reality, which you know, and God is in the greater reality is how I look at it as a Christian. But then, and I and I also wonder that trying to sort of combine the two ideas because I want to get two questions in one here. So, what you thought of that? But then also with this curvature of space time, why then? Um, do we consider that the, uh, why would you not consider the universe could be uh, infinite? 
it's it's a little hard to know exactly what infinite would mean because astronomers are usually quite careful about talking about the observable universe and and by definition you can't see something that's infinitude away right um if space and time are curved um, as they're generally considered to be you can make a distinction between let me see if i can get this right um, infinite and boundless there we go so if you if you take the analogy of of the earth as a sphere the surface of the of the earth because it's curved is boundless if you've got um, uh, a beetle that's walking across the surface of the earth um, and it imagine that the earth is really perfectly spherical it never bumps into anything it's the surface is boundless mm. but it's not infinite we can see that it's not infinite mm. um, that analogy is extended to space-time curvature if space-time curvature is mm. is positive curvature like a, like that of a sphere then we can say that you know you could send it, theoretically in principle you could send a spaceship off in that direction. It would never bump into anything until it came around full circle and bumped into the back of your head, yeah. right? It's, it's, so the universe is generally considered to be boundless, but not infinite. And one of the reasons it's not considered to be infinite is, and this is an amazing thing, according to Big Bang cosmology, the universe had a beginning. And if it had a beginning, then it's finite, at least in one direction. So there's no, there's no before the beginning. It's just the beginning. So the actual, the actual extent of time of the universe, 13.8 billion years is the closest estimate now, um, is that it's, it might be boundless as sort of going forward, but it's not, it's not boundless going backwards in time. But isn't it the Big Bang? Isn't that from a singularity, which is sort of a singularity? Is, I think uh, dimensionalist, like it is, it, like it's probably the ball of energy or something. And it's dimensionalist, so basically, it's it's infinitely small. Right. So, so I mean, I don't know. I don't think it makes a lot of difference anyway. I suppose, but I just I find it really interesting to think about that stuff. And, okay, I've got another question while well, I got the floor here. Um, I, get, I get discussion with materialists, uh, atheistic materialists. And so, and they, they will argue that, that consciousness and um, ethics, you know, empathy, uh, altruistic uh, love and everything has just flowed as part of uh, the evolutionary process. Yeah. And they, you know they can say, well, you can see it happening here and here and here. Yeah, it's just basically part of the evolutionary process, and it's just you know an, one aspect of, of your brain. Um, so I'm just want, well, that's an assertion, I, an argument. That, I'm sorry, what kind of argument? It, it's an assertion, but I don't see how it can be characterized as an argument. It, yeah, I know, but they do it anyway. 
I agree with you completely. <laughs> but so how do you see the relationship between consciousness and, and the materialistic uh, world we live in? Well, I guess I don't think that the world we live in is entirely materialistic. So, no, I, I don't either. But I mean, the thing is, the part that we would call materialistic that we can touch, see, perceive. Assumptions are if you if you say we live in a completely materialistic universe, how do you account for consciousness? Well, you've already cut the ground out from under the person trying to answer. Mm -hmm. Right. In what way? Well. I mean, I guess I would say I, I question your assumptions. I question the presupposition of the question. Um, if if the world is entirely materialistic, then it's probably entirely deterministic. And the fact that we're having this conversation is pretty meaningless because there has to be a contingency and there has to be consciousness and there has to be, I would say, free will for us to have a meaningful conversation. But if you already treat all of those things as being mere mechanisms, it's sort of conversation over. I think yeah. to that, I agree, it's just very frustrating. What I think you could add to that is uh, the article that you sent to me about Thomas Nagel called The Heretic. It was in The Guardian and Nagel had just wrote the book Mind and Cosmos. Yes. And saying that uh, he's become, um, I don't know if you call it a substance dualism or whatever whatever you might call it a platonic dualism, but he said that materialism, um, uh, the experience of life, flies in the face of materialism, or that that materialism it, there's a shortcoming to materialism because it cannot explain our own experience of the material world. That's right. That's right. That, that's a good good reference if you want to follow it up, Thomas Nagel. N-A-G-E-L. N-A-G-E-L. Mind and cosmos. Mind and cosmos. Uh, someone wanted to ask, what, how did you feel about um, Hugh Ross's creator and cosmos? I haven't looked at Hugh Ross for a long time. I have to give Hugh Ross full credit. He's one of the people who back in the late 1990s kind of got me going down this trail because he takes science seriously, he takes Big Bang cosmology seriously. Um, after I read one or two of Hugh Ross's books, I got frustrated because so many of his footnotes were to other books by Hugh Ross. <laughs> and so I, True. I don't want to be condescending, but I sort of moved, moved on from that. Um, Helpful beginning. A very helpful beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, reasons to believe um, is, is a worthwhile organization. Right. On a totally different question about, about ET. Yeah. I always thought Christians believed in angels. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I've, I've made the point writing about Paradise Lost that Milton has ET. And they're called angels. Yeah, they're, they're you know, and they and in Paradise Lost, they you know they they travel down from the stars and through the stars. Yeah, very <laughs> good, point. Very good point. Yeah, that relates to the sin. 
of that too. Yes. So it all comes back to Milton. <laughs> then the Bible. And then the Bible. Yes. <laughs> so. Okay. Is there any any last questions? Simple ones. Well, I just want to thank you so much for your efforts and uh, for a very um, engaging talk, very winsome, uh, very followable. And uh, I just thank you for your disposition and uh, helping us think through this. Well, and vice versa. Um, I've got a lot of thinking yet to do, and I really appreciate the, the depth and tenor of the questions. So mm -hmm. thanks. Those of you on Zoom. Bye. Thanks a lot. <laughs>